You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. Joining me for this week's edition of the Literature Corner is Sasonkum Zamang, the author of the absolutely brilliant Always Another Country. That it was her first book that had been received uh, to much critical acclaim here and internationally. And she has very swiftly made the rest of us feel like we are lazy AF with a second book already in the title of <laughs> The Resurrection of Winnie Mandela. And she now joins me from the other side of the globe. So, Sonka, thank you so much for being in conversation with me about this fantastic book of yours that I've read at least three or four times by last count. Enjoyed it every single time. Uh, well done. Thank you. Thanks so much, Eusebius. My favorite question to our second-time authors is where I'm going to start. Well, let me qualify that more precisely. My favorite question to ask second-time authors whose first book was Amazeballs is to ask mm-hmm. whether you had any anxiety about the second one or was it a case of, now that I've written To Kill a Mockingbird, I better quit while I'm ahead? <laughs> <laughs> it was a combination of the two. Um, so, of course, I was anxious because when you write, you care about what's on the page. And you particularly care, as you intimate, because Always Another Country was a real surprise to me how how well-received it was. But also, to be honest, because I saw this as more like a long essay than really a book, I think I underestimated, um, you know, (laughs) how much work it would take. And I Mm. I also underestimated. Made it that I was actually writing a book, um, mm. and so I don't think I would have written it if I had understood what I was getting myself into. Yeah. But be that as it may, here it is. Yeah, and I think that's fantastic because over the course of a life, as you and I have discussed before, you're going to be judged by your over, as one says, and if you're going to get an existential crisis about every single point along that journey as a creative, you'll end up not uh, releasing anything. So. You know, I mean, the book is excellent, in my opinion, as a very biased reader who's also a friend of yours. Um, But I do think it is important that one gets on with it. The other question around the book, before we get into it, that I wanted to ask you, um, and maybe the two are related, is the subject. Mawini is massive. Even in her death, she's uh, divided the world. And you think think of a book like the second book written by Reedy Klabi Kwesi, a stunning book, but also a book mm. that invites all sorts of readings that are motivated. Some are genuine. Then you have someone who loves you too much, someone who wishes they had mm. written the book and then go, okay, but these are the obvious gaps. Oh, but why didn't so-and-so's book that was actually a better book 10 years ago do well? And I actually thought to myself, this is very brave of you. We have brilliant feminist, the like of Professor Shireen Hasim, who have written in scholarly ways about Maweni. There are also some very good essayists and journalistic pieces on Mawini, including in the time of her death. How did you deal with that anxiety in terms of context, particularly as a contemporary author who, for better or worse, and rightly so, is profoundly aware of how your work lands in real time? Yeah. I mean, I think I dealt with that uh, by what I referred to earlier. I saw this as a reaction to a moment rather than as a biography that was in any way going to try to do justice to the span of her life. Mm. So while there are, there's a chronology to it, obviously, I was far more interested in what I'm always interested in, which is the extent to which 
the um, particular tells us something about the more general. Yes. Um, so I'm always interested in how the life of a particular person says something about the life of the nation. That's right. And and so it's in some ways a kind of classic um, style of essay that I have written in many different places. Mm. Um, but it's far more thoroughly researched and it's written, you know, at a longer length. Mm. But I do think of it as an essay that speaks to a moment um, and in a version, I think, of the of the draft that you saw, UCBS, before I published it, I, I was referring to it as a not biography. Yes. Um, because it's a biography of survival. It's a, a biography of um, uh, of the history of the nation through the life of a particular woman. But I'm not sure that it qualifies as a full biography. And I'm looking forward to to, bi- to reading fuller biographies because Winnie Mandela wrote so much about herself in her own voice. So we have a number of memoirs or renderings in her own voice of herself. Mm. And we have a few um, biographies that were written, um, how do I put it, that were written uh, in ways I think she probably uh, didn't have a lot of agreement with. Sure. But I'm very interested in what a contemporary biographer would do with her. Okay, well, let's get into it and demonstrate in part to our listeners what the book is, so that it can be appreciated for what it set out to be, now that we know what it was not intended to be, at least not authorily. I like the second sentence. I'm going to read the first and the second sentence and then tell you why. There are some stylistic continuities with the first book that Sasonka had written. One of them is that she writes very plainly, firstly, and then you realize, oh my God, that was actually just so beautifully incisive. And then the other stylistic continuity, speaking of beauty, is that the familiar beautiful turns of phrase that we have become used to getting from Sasonka's work, both in the short form as well as now in second book form, all of that is in there. And she does make argument and observation, which is part of what the purpose of this book is. So it's not a sort of from cradle to death biography, but it certainly was intended to engage some trenchant argument that had been made around the time of Mawini's death in particular. On page 9, it reads as follows. Winnie Mandela died on the 2nd of April 2018. When her famous ex-husband died in December 2013, and I'm going to stop right there. And the reason I love that is because it's wonderfully subtle and blunt at the same time. And it reminded me of a cheeky, deliberate, similar comment you made on Facebook recently in referring to a certain famous filmmaker's excellent uh, partner. Uh, and, (laughs) And you know exactly the moment I'm talking about. It's interesting because right there at the beginning, although you're giving us a biographical fact, immediately there's a very important feminist moment there because a lot of her existence, she was treated as some sort of accompaniment to the famous ex-husband. And in that sentence, you do a lot of work as plainly as that clause is written. Yeah, and I'm really glad that you you use the the, the term that she was treated uh, as though she was an accompaniment because we know in reality she wasn't. Um, mm. And part of the work of this book was to um, shine a spotlight on her life, but also to make it very explicit that um, Winnie Mandela was a profoundly political person. 
she is sort of forged from her birth in a kind of politics. Um, and so the notion that Nelson Mandela politicized her, mm. I, I have questions about. Mm. And so my reading of her life, and there will be disagreement about this, I'm sure, but my reading about her life, which is why I thought it was important to talk a little bit about history and place, because as you know, I'm always profoundly interested in, in the, com the, the way in which place and, and politics kind of collide, right? Mm. So I was very interested in how the place where she was born and the places she lived forged her politics long before she meets Nelson Mandela. So he's present um, sort of as a shadow rather than um, her being present in his shadow, which is, I think, a lot of the ways in which people often think about her. In the introduction, before you resort to the second person or directly speaking to Winnie, which is the voice that you use, it's an interesting device. I want to come back to that a little bit later. But you try and provide some conceptual ground which is also part of your immediate comment and argumentation in relation to how we should see her. There are terms such as strength, being a strong woman, a resilient woman, being an angry woman. There are all sorts of adjectives that take on a sense of self-justifying truth in relation to women in politics across history, across time and space. Just talk to my listeners a little bit about how you grappled with that, in particular a characterization along the lines of, for example, being being resilient and, and what it means, because sometimes these terms are, mean, are meant generously in relation to someone like Mawini, and in relation to men, they are always used to indicate a desirable trait, but if we are honest in a patriarchal world, sometimes these adjectives, when they are hurled at someone like Mawini, they are intended to indicate someone who was brittle, and who didn't really yeah. have have texture. Mm. Yeah, look, I think um, because I chose to write in a very intimate uh, voice in the you for the bulk of the text, I needed to bookend um, uh, with some uh, explanation. So I needed to do an exposition at the beginning and an exposition at the end um, because I wanted to do some heavy lifting of framing um, because the intimate voice is one that um, is laden with empathy. Mm -hmm. And yet we are dealing with someone who in particular moments behaved in ways that were not necessarily deserving of empathy. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm going to do that, I need to have a very clear sense of what the intellectual project is because the meat in the sandwich of the book is so emotional in tone. Um, so so the, 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 the introduction and the conclusion really do a lot of work in this book, uh, but obviously not, not the only work. Um, and I did want people to think about a whole range of things that we have to think about when we think about Winnie Mandela. And this difference, this distinction between strength and resilience, I think was key. Um, so often black women are referred to as strong. And we know that the term strong is laden with all kinds of <laughs> problems. Mm. Uh, to, be, to be strong uh, means uh, in some ways that we are essentialized. We, um, you know, we are the stereotypical strong black woman 
which means you can do worse things to us than you might to a white woman and we can endure it, Hmm. right? Hmm. So the strength is often used to justify ill treatment of black women as though we don't have feelings. Strong is also often used as a mask. And so I wanted to kind of unpack this idea of strength so that it's left hanging over your head as you read the rest of the text. What does it mean to think about Winnie Mandela as someone who was strong, but to think about what the costs of that strength were were for her personally? Let's give the listeners a taste of that intimate voice in terms of your stylistic choice. In the chapter about Johannesburg, Sasanke writes as follows. Johannesburg affirms your innate belief that women can do anything they want to. You have always known women are strong. You grew up taking this for granted. You fought with the boys in the fields. You have always also known that women are clever. You got top marks in school. But now you also realize there's a world of ideas in which women must involve themselves. In 1955, you finish your studies and become the first black medical social worker in the country. You begin your practical work at Baragwanath Hospital. You are only 19 years old, but you make an impression. You meet Dr. Ntato Motlana, a giant of the medical profession and a man who will become like an uncle to you. You work under his guidance during your clinical practice, and he is impressed by your gusto and heart, but he is concerned for you. She worries so much about people, he says, much more than about yourself. It's such an interesting device because there is the intimacy that comes with directing your authorial voice to Mawinias if you're speaking to her and in conversation with Mm. her. But of course, I'm the reader and I'm Mm. absorbing all this detail. And you will remember in an earlier draft of this, I posed you some questions. And the wonderful thing about getting advice from friends is you can listen to some advice and discard it. I don't remember you (laughs) remarking on this particular question that I had. So I'll now ask it in the form of an interview question, which is um, how did you come to to that particular, you know, to that particular choice? Because it doesn't allow you to be too didactic, which is why you cram a lot of the more direct argumentation you want to make into the introduction and write at the ending, the conclusion that sort of holds the book figuratively and otherwise but in between when you speak to her it's almost like reminding someone of the fullness of their excellence and the complexity of their place in society and you have the intimacy in terms of what it evokes in the reader but what are the what are the limitations so talk me through how you made that choice so there are two things that i'm trying to do with the use of the second person the first is as you've rightly pointed out uh, i'm speaking to her Um, And so that's intimate, and as I said before, structured into the tone is empathy. The second thing, however, is that the you can also be um, you the reader, right? So when you say, um, when you write, um, you know, you imagine yourself, you know, walking down the street, that can be, uh, the you can be Winnie Mandela, or the you can be you yourself the reader, correct? Yes, yes, yes. yeah. So part of what that part That's of right. what that to do is that you uh, can easily slip in and out of a conversation with Winnie Mandela that you are a voyeur into between mm. Sisonke mm. and Mamwini. Mm. Also allowed to be literally walking in Winnie Mandela's shoes. Mm. You are her, and and part of why I wanted to do that 
is because sometimes with icons, it's very difficult for us to imagine ourselves as them. And because of the profoundly um, unique and yet ordinary journey that Winnie Mandela walked, um, often I think we didn't imagine ourselves as her. Mm. And so we didn't extend to her a kind of empathy that we ought to have extended to her. Mm. Um, therefore, able to render her in the full complexity that she deserved. So I'm trying to achieve two things with that voice. Um, yes. Both for you see me as a younger person talking to an older person in a very honest way, which both in, involves respect and questioning, as well as to imagine yourself as her. Now, let's get to some of the controversies where you do stick your neck out. And I think this was part of the reason why you were determined to write this book and have a full, full classic essay. And I'm thinking an essay in the sort of John Stuart Mill on, on liberty type of length of essay. I'm not talking about a, a long column uh, intervention yeah. into the public discussion, which is how the book also looks as a physical book, very different to your yeah. first book. And that is yeah. in relation to the question of whether she was a murderer, whether she was a villain. And the book there takes an interesting turn because about two-thirds through the book, you basically put the ANC on trial for its convenient refusal to remember its own complicity in stoking certain forms of violence against certain kinds of black people and other people in the township while we were all fighting this behemoth called the apartheid government. And then because mm. she was inelegant about some of the choices she was either directly making or supporting, and it became inconvenient for the ANC to be associated with her, suddenly uh, she could be vilified as somehow undermining what the party stands for. Tell my listeners, without giving the detail away, because they'll have to go and buy the book after this discussion, what the kind of evidence is that you lift to the surface and then analyze to probe the ANC's own hypocrisy. And then thereafter, how do you view Mawini on this question? Was she a murderer, among many other things? Mm. So, you know, the 1980s is, is a very difficult time in South Africa. It's a very violent time. And it's a time when it becomes clear that uh, the struggle will not be won uh, through nonviolence alone, and the struggle will also not be won through Mkonto Wesizwe, which um, has uh, troops and forces which are just uh, far too inferior when when you look at what the the then South African government has at its disposal, a real army. Mm. Uh, and so it begins around 1985, uh, a campaign that is run uh, by the African National Congress from its headquarters in Lusaka, uh, to really talk about this notion of ungovernability. And simultaneously within the country, there's this real surge, the rise of what becomes the UDF, uh, and then uh, later the mass democratic movement, a real surge of citizen action. And this idea of ungovernability, that the way to win the struggle will be to render the country ungovernable, means not just a, a boycotts and strikes, uh, the way some revisionist history would like us to believe. It also really means um, saying to people that um, burning tires, uh, dealing with collaborators and informers, 
is the way to go. Yes. And that there are guidelines that are put in place. And so I did a lot of archival research that looked at um, old documents produced by the ANC itself, hmm. in which there were um, many people who wrote regularly about the kind of guidelines for the use of, of, of violence against uh, collaborators, um, uh, how it is that we run vigilante courts, uh, what to do when it's become clear to the community that someone is an informer? How do you execute them while still maintaining the support of the community? Very technical guidelines for how to advance this ungovernability. Yes. I say this without judgment. I simply say it as an observation and to describe the milieu. And so, of course, when Winnie Mandela takes up this um, this kind of language and these kinds of activities, um, uh, she is doing so as part of a broader context. Um, and I think what often gets lost in the discussions about Winnie Mandela is that broader context. That's right. More directly to my second question, does she have blood on her hands? Is she morally and criminally culpable, if not for actions directly from her own hands, those done in her name? So this is a, an answer where the, the, the answer is so complex that it has to be both yes and no. And it cannot be a question that we only target at Winnie Mandela, which is the point of the book. Mm. So to ask that question of Winnie Mandela as though she were the only person engaged in the struggle is to somehow exceptionalize her in ways that seem misogynistic um, and that are self-serving, I think, that are revisionist in, in their essence. Okay, well, let's leave it there because you teased that out in the book. And if people want to know how Sasson can unravel it, please go and read it. That was one of my favorite chapters. I see it as sort of the moral fulcrum of the entire book, and it really is worth reading. I'm going to give you a taste, lastly, of that familiar Sasonke style that in part was the reason why she was an Ellen Payton finalist for her first book. And here you have a combination of beautiful writing as well as, again, the ultimate. And I think you, you really are becoming sort of the, the gold standard for how to crush false dichotomies, uh, Sasonke. You've done it for, for a while now, and you do it wonderfully uh, in on page 145. And she writes the following. The vilification of Winnie is tied up in the canonization of Nelson. At the end of the apartheid era, a myth was created. It was a political fiction about a demure, sweet, and loving wife called Winnie. Over the years, without Nelson Mandela's sage presence to guide her, the sweet young Winnie went mad. Those who tried to reach out to her out of respect for her husband were rebuffed. The woman who had once been good became just as bad as her oppressors. The version of events, this version of events allows those who love Madiba to rescue him from contamination. Isn't that a wonderful... Lion mother? He couldn't have known when he married that well-behaved, beautiful country girl that she would unravel so spectacularly. Those who want to believe Madiba was the kind of man who would never associate with violence, shake their heads and look disappointed. They allow Winnie to be Madiba's mistake. She is the one thing he ever got wrong. And that speaks, doesn't it, to our addiction to divide our historical figures, Sasonka, into sinners and saints. Your final reflections on that. Absolutely. And I mean, I think it's really important to recognize that um, 
that while the 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 decisions that Winnie Mandela made, just like Nelson Mandela made, were profoundly political, often they are ca- put into the category of the personal. So what we want to do is see her as mad, because women are uh, belong in the category of emotion, and men belong in the category of ration, right? So the way to explain her is to say she lost her mind, that prison was difficult, you know, all these explanations. And I refuse to pathologize her, um, which is not to say that I fully condone her, because, of course, other people in the struggle who were in very difficult circumstances, and some of them similar to what Winnie Mandela went through, um, didn't behave as though she did. And we can't ignore the fact that many of the victims Um, of crimes that happened around her, whether or not she perpetrated them, were black children, right? So we can't pretend that those things didn't happen. And so what this book is, is really an attempt to grapple both with the hypocrisy within the ruling party, which seeks to revise history and airbrush Winnie out of key moments, as well as the patriarchy of the country, which seeks to say she's an adjunct to this wonderful man, who then rises to become a saint. Um, But we can't airbrush the pain and suffering of other black people, nor can we pretend that Winnie Mandela did things uh, simply because she was mad, because she was fundamentally political. So all of these things kind of jostle against one another. And I think being able to be honest about these things in their complexity is the only thing that helps helps us to deal with the present moment Absolutely. of confusion, immorality, ambivalence, ambiguity. So you know, UCBS, I don't write about contemporary South African politics anymore because I think the, the explanations lie elsewhere. They lie underneath the skin, not in the present moment, but in these recent past moments. Songkham Samang, you're a saintly sinner and our literary landscape is all the better for it. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Eusebius.